Well, good morning once again, and if you brought a copy of the Word of God with you, I would invite you to find Romans chapter 10 as we resume our study of the sovereignty of God in salvation as we continue in our study of the book of Romans. We're in this section, chapters 9 through 11, which is very Jewish, but what's good for the Jew is good for the Gentile, amen? Especially in chapter 10, as we look at the first 13 verses together where it says, brothers... My heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that is for Israel, is that they must or they may be saved. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, that is their own form of righteousness. They did not submit, hupatasso means to come underneath and rank, to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? Here's what it says. The word is near you. It's in your mouth. It's it's in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction distinction between Jew and Greek. The, The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I am preparing, as we speak, a summer series on theology, and I'm titling this series, uh, A Quest for an Unshakable Faith. Uh, The idea is, is getting true, good, biblical theology into your heart and mind is like spiritual re-rod. It'll strengthen you and your heart and your walk with God. But the reason I tell you that is because this is at the very heart of the Apostle Paul's concern in Romans chapter 10. And the concern that he had for the Jew is the same concern that I have for, for unbelievers, certainly, but also believers in Jesus. There's an old Negro spiritual that goes like this. Everybody talking about heaven ain't going there. I marvel. I'm going to be very, very honest and candid with you. I'm going to be bare-knuckled honest and candid with you this morning. I marvel at the theological ignorance that I pick up even amongst Christians. 
Much of it is certainly minor and having no eternal consequence. But some of it is not minor at all. Uh, the thoughts that some people express, the, the thinking that's entrenched in some of your minds, and the assumptions that some of you have is nothing short of appalling at times. And I'm not just picking out words. It's appalling. I talk with born-again Christians on a somewhat regular basis. Not just our church, but all around, who, who think that religiousness is, equates to Christianity. I hear things like, well, yeah, he's a Christian. Really? And how do you know that? Well, I mean, you know, he goes to church. Are you serious? Well, I mean, yeah, it's a Bible-believing church. The assumptions are just unbelievable. You know, most of the statistics that are done on Americans reveal our, you know, basically our general belief that, you know, goodness, man's goodness, uh, is going to get most of us to heaven. That good works play a huge part in our salvation. And that in the end, you know, you know, gosh darn it, we're all going there, aren't we? This is appalling. We should expect this from the unbeliever. But not amongst believers. The unbeliever says, well, you know, we're all going to Chicago. You know, you come from the east, I come from the west. Somebody's coming from, hey, we're all taking different roads. We're all getting there, right? I remember in the early days of my ministry here at Sailorville, praying on a Wednesday night with somebody who was a Roman Catholic guy, and he was funny. He, was, he, he said he wanted to pray with us, so we were praying. I said, well, do you want to pray? And he said, yeah, I'll pray. And there's a little pause, and he goes, Lord, got a Catholic here coming in on the Baptist channel. I just busted out laughing. He was dead serious. It was funny. And he was sincere. But I, I got to tell you something. Sincerity never saved anybody. And it's, it's time for us to get a grip on this. According to Newsweek magazine, that great theological you know, periodical, a few years back, 8 out of 10, 8 out of 10 Americans, including, watch this, 68% of evangelicals, which is an oxymoron, believe that more than one faith can be a pathway to salvation. George Barner reported that 64% of Americans agreed with the following statement, and I quote, Christians, Jews, Muslims, Buddhists, and all others pray to the same God even though they use different names for God, unquote. You can't make this stuff up. This is the general populace in which we live. You know, I mean, I mean shortly after I was converted, my dear aunt came to me, my mother's sister, and she was, she was sort of the theologian in the family. And so she was sent on a mission to re-evangelize her nephew. Which, by the way, every good Catholic is told to do. And you do the same thing. If your kid left, you know, the faith and, you know, went to some, you know, deviant faith. But she comes to me and she says, Pat, come back. I said, Margie, I, I have no intention to come back. She said, well, Pat, you have to understand how we get to God. You know, 
If I had something really hard to say to you, I mean really, really hard to say, you, say to you. Now, just think about this, Pat. I, I wouldn't just come directly to you. It'd be too hard for you to take. I'd go to your mother, my sister. She could take the hard word a lot better, and then she would present it to you. This is what our Mar- mother Mary does. As we pray to her, she presents these words that are a little too hard for us to take right to Jesus, and she takes them to Jesus. Now, I got to tell you something. I was not nearly as refined in those days in my responses. (laughs) On the other hand, that was good Catholic theology on her part. At least she could defend her faith. Granted, she had no biblical basis for what she was saying, but she was very, very sure of herself. As we resume our study of Romans here this morning, you know, we pick it up in chapter 10. Chapter 9, if you recall, those of you who are with us, has this punch-you-in-the-mouth view of God, this huge view of God, and tells us that salvation is completely of Him. And that you have nothing to do but to receive what He has offered to you. And that God has chosen those who will be saved. And, and some of us, ah, oh, we recoil at that. But that's exactly what the scripture is. Not by him who runs, not by him who wills, but God who shows mercy, right? Chapter 9, verse 16. And now we come to chapter 10, and it looks like a switch has taken place. Because we go from divine sovereignty and election to human responsibility and choice, if you please, and deciding and trusting and believing. And there's no contradiction in the mind of Paul. None, none what's, there's no contradiction in Paul's mind. He's not, he has no struggle here with this. In reality, here's the point Paul is making. No one, no one will be saved that does not personally respond to God in faith. Do you believe that? No one. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's an exclusive message. That doesn't sound like a lot of different pathways, right? I'm glad that God simplified it for us. Jesus, period. Grace, period. Faith, period. Now, there's several things I want you to notice from this passage of Scripture, and they're all very important for us to, to note, both believer and unbeliever. So if you're an unbeliever, you're an in, that is, you're an individual who hasn't placed your faith in Jesus yet, listen very keenly, and if you are a believer, this is going to be sort of a caveat to you, a warning, if you please. Here's the first. Religious zeal, even for God himself, will not save you. And I don't know how you can get any clearer than this, but look at what he says. I, my, my heart's desire, I'm, my heart is pumping for the Jew. My prayer to God to, for them is that they, they be saved. Of course, the implication is they're not, right? Isn't that the implication here? They're not saved. Ray Stedman put it like this. We can never deal realistically with life until we face up to this fundamental fact. People are not waiting until they die to be lost, they're already lost, unquote. This was our whole point of chapter 9. Remember we said, we said that, that God, the Bible doesn't teach double predestination, doesn't teach that God chooses some to salvation and chooses others to go to hell. 
or chooses other to be, others to be condemned, they're already condemned. He doesn't have to choose anybody to be lost. They're already lost. And so, on the other hand, Paul's passion for God, his sovereign rule, never negated his passion for his people, and for all people for that matter. And this isn't the only time he tells us to pray for the law. If you read the pastoral epistle, 1 Timothy 2, he says, he says first of all, I want your prayers, prayers for all those in authority, etc., that they might be saved. Paul's passion for God and his greatness and his, his salvation, his sovereignty, did not negate his passion and his heartbeat for lost people. And there's not a shred of conflict in his theology, none. So, it is right for us to plead with, to pray for, and to preach to the lost. It always will be. In fact, God says, it's by the foolishness of the message preached, I've chosen to save some. Have you ever read that? That's what the Bible says. And he says in verse 2, they have a zeal for God. That word means heat. Have you ever met anybody zealous that's not a Christian? I have. Have you ever met anybody zealous that claimed to be a Christian that was not a Christian? I've met many of them. They have a zeal for God, but watch this. It's not according to what? Say it. It's not according to knowledge. Now listen, new Christians especially are confused over zealously religious people. As many, you know... It's, it's amazing to me when life and death circumstances take place and somebody's dying over here. Well, you, you can say, yeah, he's not saved. He's not saved. You, you can say, yeah, I know. He, I've, ta- I've talked to him about Jesus. He's not listening. He's, he's, he's lost. But suddenly he's dying. And suddenly, oh, God, you know, I prayed a prayer with him. I, uh, we, we just, our theology sort of switches because of our love for the individual who might be dying. Or maybe they even died. And all of a sudden, we're just conjuring up, and I guess it's natural for us to conjure up these, well, I think maybe he prayed, you know, like the thief on the cross or whatever. And certainly that's possible. But it's always interesting to me, because I've been doing this pastor thing for nearly 30 years, I just, it's fascinating to me how fuzzy people get with their theology when somebody's in deep, deep trouble. And Paul is saying here that these Jews have an enormous amount of zeal. And anybody who's ever studied Orthodox Judaism knows that's true. The problem in our day especially is that we have, we've added to the solas of the Reformation. If you recall, back in the 1600s, in, uh, during the Reformation, which gave way to the Puritan era, you had the five solas. They're great. They're, basically, they were, it's like pillars to evangelical Christianity that was extrapolating, actually exiting itself from Catholicism. There was a sola, sola de gloria, you know, for the glory of God alone. This is, all of this is for the glory of God alone. Uh, uh, sola Christo, Christos, that is Christ alone. Sola uh, grat, you know, gracia, that means grace alone. Sola fide, faith alone. And then the thing that undergirds all of the solas is sola scriptura, which means what? 
The scripture alone, the Bible alone. The Bible is our final authority. But what's happened today is, you know, somebody has, uh, has called it sola experientia. Experience alone. And that becomes the very basis for my salvation, my experience, my feelings, my love for somebody, uh, my vision, my dream. How else do you explain a, a six or seven year old going to heaven, coming back, writing a book, and people flood to the movie theaters for it? And I'll be very candid with you the more moving that book and or movie is, the more dangerous it becomes. Because it becomes the very experiential, the very basis for my faith is not what Scripture has said, but what somebody has experienced. That's a dangerous, dangerous thing, I would submit to you. And so, I mean, this is the reason why... The writer of Proverbs says in chapter 19, it's not good to have zeal without knowledge. Have you ever read that? It's not good to have zeal without knowledge, 19 verse 2. And that's why Peter, Peter sort of wanted to ramrod this home when he said, you know, I saw the glory of God on the Mount of Transfiguration. He writes about Matthew 17 account. He says, you know, I heard the voice of the Father. This is my beloved Son. You know, listen to him. I heard the voice come out from, from above, and here he is with, you know, with his buddies. And, you know, you could read that, or you could read the gospel account and say, man, that would have been cool. See Jesus transformed into his revelation glory, resplendent, you know. Ugh, you know, would love to see that. But Peter tells us in 2 Peter, you know, in spite of all this, in the same context, he says, we have a more sure word of prophecy wherein you do well to take heed. This, I would have you say to you, is a more sure word than any titillating feeling you'll ever have. And it isn't to say that, you know, God's anti-feeling. You should feel like you are convicted of your sin. You should feel the joy of Christ. You should feel the want to praise Him. You should feel this way. But it's not the basis of our faith. Nor ever could it be. And Paul is saying, these people have lots of zeal, but it's not according to knowledge. And they, watch, he says, because they haven't, they being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God, verse 3, and, not, and seeking to establish their own, watch this, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Now, doesn't submit imply humility? To submit to the righteousness of God means to humbly admit you don't possess it. No matter how good you may be, no matter how righteous you may feel, you don't have it if you don't have Jesus. It's just that simple. I spoke with a woman just the other day who was singing the praises of her pastor and of her church, a church that clearly teaches baptismal regeneration. That is, when you baptize the baby, sins are taken away. says it right in the doctrinal statement. Not just one, but two of them. 
And I, said, and I said, that's my only concern. I know you have a very charismatic pastor. And he's very articulate. I've actually heard him. I'm, I'm impressed, actually. He's a good speaker. And I'm not doubting that he's a Christian. I'm not here to judge the man's soul. I'm just telling you what he says and what's on paper. They don't always go together. And she looked at me and says, well, I know. But, you know, I mean, he's really good, though. He's a really good speaker. And... Um, you know, I don't even know if he really believes all that stuff anyway. I said, that's interesting. His church does. I mean, if nothing else, this is flat-out confusion. At best, we're talking confusion. Now, here's another thing. I, I, that's, I spent the most time. I'm going to go a little quicker now. The law has the power to show you your sin but not save your soul. Now, we've dealt with this already, but it's, it's important to bring it up. Because in verse 4, Paul says, Christ is the end of the law. Glory to God for righteousness to the person who believes. The end. The law, as we learn, can't save us. It has no ability to do so. It reveals sin. It can't cure it. It's like a doctor. You love the doctor. You appreciate the doctor because the doctor comes along and he cures you of your sin. No, he doesn't. He just prescribes the remedy for it, right? He points you in the right direction. He might even you know, plunge the knife in. Probably not like that, but at any rate, he's going he's gonna, to he's gonna cut it out, whatever needs to be taken out. Yet, yet without the doctor, and we acknowledge this, right? Without the doctor, there's, there's no clear direction. That's what the law does. The law is like the doctor. It, 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 it examines us. It shows us that we're hurting. We're sinful. We need help. Paul says in Galatians, it drives us to Christ. It's like a schoolmaster. It's like a guardian. But it can't save us. It it can drive us to that cross, but it can't take us any further. That's why we need grace. That's why we need Jesus, who is both the doctor and the cure. Amen? His death absorbed every ounce of the wrath of God, as we just sang. And in his resurrection, he delivers every blessing from God. That's why we need both. And so when he dies on the cross, he says, it is what? It's finished. He's the end of the law. He's fulfilled all righteousness. And so in verse 5, it says, For Moses writes about the righteousness which is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. And he, he makes a direct allusion to uh, Leviticus 18, verse 5, where it says, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. In other words, you've got to live. If you're going to say, okay, I'm going to live by the law. I like that whole Ten Commandments thing. Good luck. And all Paul is saying here is, and you can read all through Deuteronomy, which is a law book, the second law, but if you read through Deuteronomy, you'll see repeatedly that it's really a grace book. Repeatedly. And, and, and Paul's going to keep quoting from, from Moses here. Deuteronomy is telling us you can't do it. You're not going to be able to do it by keeping the law. There's actually grace in the book of Deuteronomy. But Paul is saying, he's basically saying, I. All I'm telling you is what's already in the the book that you hold, to the Jewish guy anyway. And then here's the third thing. Your efforts to be saved are not only useless, they are an affront to the gospel. Which is the meaning of these strange verses here, which actually are a quote from Deuteronomy. In fact, I'm just going to go there real quick. Uh, I I, I didn't plan on this, but Deuteronomy chapter 30, uh, 
I'm just going to go there real quick and read this to you. Deuteronomy 30. Listen to Deuteronomy 30 and verses 11 through 14. For this is the commandment I command you today. This is Moses writing. Uh, this is the commandment that I command you today. It is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us? That, uh, that we may hear it to do it. Neither does be, is it beyond the sea that you may say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. But the word is near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart that you can do it. That sounds just like Romans chapter 10, doesn't it? Because Paul has taken it. He's not only taking Deuteronomy 30 and putting it in, superimposing it into Romans 10. He puts his own interpretation on it. Well, he goes. In fact, look, he, 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 says, he says, who, verse 6, but the righteous based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. That's a quote from Deuteronomy. And then he puts his own interpretive mind into it through the Spirit of God. That is to bring Christ down. Who will descend, verse 7, into the abyss? And then he, that's a quote from Deuteronomy. And then he, then he puts his interpretive thought into it by the Spirit of God. That is to bring Christ up from the dead. And then he quotes the very end of that passage again. He takes another slice. But what does it say, verse 8? Here's what it says. The word's near to you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. Paul is an Old Testament scholar. And he's telling these Jewish people, you, if, if you read the law purely legalistically, you have missed the heart of the law. Because even Moses said, you can't drag God down from heaven or pull him up from the, from the abyss. I love the ESV Study Bible's concise commentary on this. I want to give it to you. It's really, really good. It says, and I quote, there is no need to travel to heaven to bring Christ to earth, for God has already sent him into the world. Nor should anyone think they must bring Christ up from the realm of the dead, for God has already raised Christ from the dead. What God requires is not superhuman works, but faith in the gospel Paul preaches. And here's the point. He's saying, if you, if you have this idea that I've got, to do, I've got to do something to bring God down, I've got to do something to bring Christ up, that's an affront to the gospel. Christ has already done it all for you. He's already come down for you. He's already raised from the dead. We just preached on this last week. Your job is very simple. Humble yourself and believe. That's it. You humble yourself and you believe the gospel. Anything else or anything added is an affront to the good news itself. Fourthly, salvation occurs when Christ is accepted as Lord in your heart. Now, these next couple of verses, you, you know them. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, believe in your heart God raised from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart, man believes unto righteousness. With the mouth, confessions made unto salvation. Have you ever heard me quote a passage of Scripture more than that one? Ever? Is there a clear statement in all of Scripture on how to be saved in this? There is not. And listen carefully what I'm about to tell you. You will never find anywhere in the Bible. Are you ready for this? You will never find anywhere in the Bible except Jesus as your Savior. Did you know that? Just swallow that for a minute. 
you will never find anywhere in the Bible a call to accept Jesus as your Savior. You know what you'll find? Accept him as your Lord and Savior. Because he's certainly Savior. This is when even Paul in, in Acts chapter 16, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved. Accepting Christ as Lord doesn't mean you'll never screw up. It doesn't mean you'll never sin again. It doesn't mean you won't have struggles in your faith walk. It does mean when you do, you'll bow to him. You'll respond to him. You'll humble yourself to him. You'll change your ways. You'll walk away from your sin because he's Lord. He's curious. He's boss. He's sovereign. Is he not? He's more than just a savior. That's the reason why Jesus gave the parable, the the different soils. Everybody's responding. Only one's bearing fruit. Everybody's praying prayers. This is the reason why John said, they went out from us, but they weren't of us. If they were of us, they would have stayed with us. But they went out. Why? So that it might be made clear that they were not all of us. This is why Paul writes to Titus, you know, though they profess to know God, in works they deny him. They've not made him Lord. The scary thing is that some of you, some of you in this very room are going to go all the way to the gateway of heaven only to hear the words of Jesus who said, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. Bunyan, in his book, Pilgrim's Progress, has, has Christian and hopeful making their way all the way up to the gate of heaven. If you've read the book, you know this part of the story, right? And they have their parchments, representative of trusting the promises of God. They've trusted the Lord Jesus. They're going into heaven. And right behind them on a boat is another guy who comes up with full expectation, and he's turned back into the abyss. His name? Ignorance. What did it say earlier here? Verse 3. For being ignorant of God's righteousness that comes from him, seeking to establish their own brand of righteousness, they have not submitted to the righteousness of God. And so this makes this a very serious Word, does it not? Just look at verses 9 and 10, because I just want to just, you know them, but look at, if you confess, that means to agree. You need to agree that it's God's righteousness in Jesus alone that can save you. You confess with your mouth that he's Lord, that he's Lord. Remember, it's not Jesus as Savior, it's Jesus as Lord. He's Lord and Savior. Don't try to you know, this business of, well, I accepted him as my Savior. He's just not my... That makes no sense. The Bible doesn't recognize that ever. Remember when Jesus said, Jesus once said, why do you call me Savior, Savior, and do not do the things which I say? Is that what he said? He said, why do you call me what? Lord. Lord. Because you're mocking the gospel by claiming Christ is Lord 
but it's had no intrinsic impact in your life. There's nothing coming out because you've not been changed. You've not been saved. And then he says, believe. That means to trust. That's the word. It's the classic word to, to trust in. Bestuo, trust. The word means to be completely persuaded. That's the reason why we don't just tell people to pray prayers. Now, some of you do, and you need to stop. Because you're creating false converts when you do that. When somebody desires to trust Jesus, when they desire to believe, their heart is smitten. Yes, you press the gospel upon them, but you trust the Lord to to cause them to say, this is what I want, this is what I desire, and... You lead them along at that point, and they believe. And they believe in their heart. This is, you know what the heart is, right? Right? I don't really have to, I mean, does anybody have to explain to you what your heart is? It's where you, that's, that, that's what makes you tick physically, but spiritually as well. It's the center of all of your affection, and you're giving it to Jesus. And you believe that he rose from the dead. That's interesting, isn't it? He doesn't say anything about the death of Jesus because to these Jews, they knew he died. The, whole, the issue was his resurrection. And you'll be saved. You'll be delivered. You'll be forgiven. One more thing. One more thing to point out from this passage, and that is God makes no distinction in salvation. Whoever means whoever. That's why he says in verse 11 of the scripture, it says, everyone, or whoever, same meaning, who believes in him will not be put to shame. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing riches on all who call upon him. And aren't you glad? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And he sows some scripture there from Isaiah and from Joel. He says, whoever calls, that just means to believe because it just reflects our desperation. Nobody who was ever drowning, who called out to somebody who reached down to pull him out of the water, later said, well, you know, it's because I called that I got saved. No, you called because you were desperate to be saved, right? All this is is a desperation cry from your heart. That's all that means. Today, is an epic moment in the Roman Catholic Church. In case you didn't know already, it's going to be live-streamed. Two recent popes will be canonized. That means they'll become saints. First time ever, two, one shot, by the way. It's an incredible process. If you look at there's like four stages you go from, you know, being a servant of God to, you know, veneration to beautification and they eventually become saints. Actually requires that you get a couple you have a couple of miracles to your, you know, notched in your belt. Uh, the Pope John the 23rd only got one, but he got a pass. He's in. A lot of zeal. A lot of good works. And in the end they become a saint. Why do I tell you that? Because it's happening today, for one. And two, because the Bible teaches that only God can make you a saint. And he does it every time you bow, someone bows their heart to Jesus. That's good news. That's good news to you. 
Will you? Will you bow your heart to Jesus? Go ahead and take out that insert from your bulletin right now, wherever you're at. It might be in front of you if you don't have one. Pull the, take that insert out. I have a question for you. And in fact, I want you to write a question at the top of it, wherever you can find a place to write. Write this question. Here it is. Write down this question. Have I been fooled? Have I been fooled? I really believe that, and I thank God that I think we're starting to turn the corner and come to the end of this generation that we have been in the midst of, that has been fooled into thinking that because you prayed some prayer somebody gave you, you got saved. That isn't what saves you. Submitting to the righteousness of God in faith is what saves you. Placing your faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. And then to those of you who are Christians, have you been fooled by the zeal of other people's lives? Thinking that they're saved, assuming that. And, and you say, well, well, what about it? What, what if I have? Well, it probably means you've never talked to him about Jesus. That's probably what it means because you don't have any burden for them. They're they're saved. Have you been fooled in in, in equating religiosity to Christianity? Because the two aren't the same. What uh, What does that old praise song say? How does it go? He is Lord. He is Lord. He is risen from the dead and he is Lord. Respond in some way. And some of you, it'd be a lot easier just, you know, respond on your smartphone. You can do that as well. Because we want to take these responses from you and pray over them. I want you to be honest. Some of you know very well that you have been trusting yourself. You've been trusting your prayer. You've been trusting your church attendance. You've been trusting the fact that you were raised in a wonderful home. And I have no doubt you were, but that won't save you. You may have a great zeal for God even, but if it's not according to knowledge, you're not a Christian. But if you will believe that Jesus Christ paid everything, absorbed all the wrath of God for you, and then rose from the dead after dying for you, so as to give you his salvation, his forgiveness, and his lordship. Trust him right now. Just from your heart. Because it's got to come from your heart, right? That's where you're ticking. Trust him. And you'll be saved. Pray with me. And when we're done praying, we'll take up an offering. And you can just put that in there. If you're, I hope most of you will do it. We'll pray over those things. If you want us to get back with you, we will. We'll absolutely get back with you. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be able to just come together around your word today and in song. We thank you so much for your great salvation. And Lord, forgive us for screwing it up in our own lives, in our own flesh. And we just, we just want to get our dirty hands involved in this somehow, Lord. But we are dirty. We are sinful. We, we can't save ourselves. We... We need you. We need Jesus. We need to be humble. 
We need to stop trusting our own works and our own self-righteousness and trust Jesus alone. I pray for those who have been listening to the gospel for the past several weeks, maybe months, perhaps in some cases, Lord, years. And you've been working on them. Your Holy Spirit's been speaking to their hearts. And even right now as we pray, they're thinking, ah, that's me, that's me. I want this, but it's so embarrassing. What's worse, being humbled forever in eternity or being embarrassed right now? Just acknowledge that you're a sinner and from your heart believe in Jesus. I pray, dear God, that you will strengthen the hearts of the Christians here to be able to see with more distinction, not judgmentally, not, not at all, but to be able to love your gospel and realize it's the only hope for those who don't know Jesus not religiousness or even zeal. So help us to this end, Lord. As we take up an offering, we pray that you'd bless that too. Bless the words, your words, as they've gone forth in Jesus' name. Amen.